are in our uh, series, uh, What's Next? Waiting for the Kingdom to Come. And we have covered a lot of subjects. Uh, all of these are important because when we put this all together, we're going to begin that really probably in the next week or two. Um, we have to ha keep some of these things in mind. So remember that one of the problems in Christian eschatology is replacement theology and missing the point of the gospel. We talked about the previous creation before the flood, the present creation, which is the focus of salvation, and the new creation, which will come after the kingdom. That salvation is from the Jews. The nations began at Babel. They are without hope and without God. Israel was created as a people and a culture to establish to be a light to the nations through whom he would bring salvation, deliverance from the curse that was on the whole creation. The covenants themselves belong to Israel, but while they are the focus of the promises, it doesn't include them without us. And then the gathering of Israel and the kingdom to come requires resurrection. Uh, we'll talk more about that next week. The return of Jesus is going to bring the restored kingdom to Israel. That kingdom is the restored kingdom of David with Jesus sitting on the throne of David ruling over uh, Israel. Israel at that time will be the head of the nations and the Torah and the word of the Lord will come from Zion and from Jerusalem as we read every, we recite every week coming out of the scriptures, coming out of the ark. That chapter 2 of Isaiah is very important for what's going to happen. The gospel is the good news of peace that bring and things that bring joy and salvation. The Hebrew word for that is Yeshua and the reign of God over the whole earth. Um, this gospel is to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles, but there are reasons why the Jews have not fully received Jesus as the Messiah. Some because they're not of faith, some because they've been damaged by Christian anti-Semitism, and some have been temporarily hardened for our benefit, and there is a purpose in God for the remnant that remains that I'm going to talk more as we start putting these pieces together, certain things that Israel has to fulfill in the latter days. So to this week we continue the series more directly. Uh, we spend a lot of time on the gospel there. We need to understand that the purpose of God in creation and in salvation is to manifest His glory in the creation before the angels. This plan has Israel as a centerpiece, uh, as the light of God to the nations, and as the people from whom the Messiah will come and where the Messiah will reign. And so Israel must stay central in that process. Today I want to talk about the relationship between mankind as created in the image of God and what is sometimes called the one new man, or the new mankind, the new humanity, uh, as we are recreated, if you will, in the image of God's Son. So you remember back uh, a while when we looked at Peter talking about the people who misunderstand that there was an earth before the flood, that creation was destroyed by the flood, there is a new, a regular, uh, the current creation that we are in. This one is 
in desperate need of restoration. And then, once this one is restored, it will be replaced by the new creation. Now, as the kingdom to come is both present now and yet not in its fullness, we've talked about that a lot, that's also true of the new covenant that was initiated at the Last Supper but has not come into its fullness, and the new creation which also has begun with the resurrection of Jesus and will continue beyond the restoration into that new creation. You and I, as human beings, bear the image of God in both this present creation and in the new creation. And that's really important. We're going to really zero in on that next week, in some sense, when we talk about the return of the Lord and and the rapture. Uh, But the idea here is that we need to see ourselves as both bearing the image of God now in this creation as we were created as mortals, and then what we are as the new creation as immortals. So we're going to start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. I'm going to read that if you've got your Bibles to take a look at that. 26 through 28. God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the sea, the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Really important to understand that we were created as human beings, as male and female, created in the image of God with a mandate to multiply and to manage and have stewardship over the living creatures of the earth. Now, in... Genesis 9, one of the reasons that we are told that murder is forbidden is because human beings are created in the image of God. And then if we go to the book of James, who talks about our tongue that we have trouble controlling, he says that with our tongue we bless God and we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. We bear God's image and his likeness in our creation. Now, obviously sin has marred that image, and often we show our unlikeness to God, but God has actually addressed that problem. So I'd like you to turn with me to Colossians, the book of Colossians. It's important to know that these themes are mentioned throughout the scriptures. We need to somewhat keep them in our mind. We have a tendency not to do that particularly in our oversimplification of the gospel. But the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's that kingdom that is now but is not full yet. 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now he's really talking about two things there, that Jesus is the fullness of the image of God. And the reason for that, he goes on to tell us, because by him, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have the first place in everything. He's the head of the church. He's the first one to be resurrected in the new creation, in the new covenant in that context. For it pleased the Father for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things are in earth or in heaven, and though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So Paul's telling this, as he's told the Colossians, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he's come to reconcile us through his actual physical body, through death, and then in resurrection to be a firstfruits of the, the world to come. It's more than just a reconciliation and a restoration. And so he says, we're to stay firmly established, but not moved from the hope of the gospel. That is not simply a hope of personal salvation. It's more than that. This resurrection of Jesus does two things. Uh, and ours will do the same thing. It restores us to life in a body, to inherit the kingdom of God on earth. That is part of the gospel, and that part's lost to many Christians because they don't have this idea of a restoration of the kingdom on earth. The premillennialists do, but the other, the amillennialists do not. Uh, so the kingdom to come really is important, but it also establishes the new creation, which is also now and not yet. Now, how does this work? Well, Paul gives us some insight into this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 will begin at verse 14. This is a very important chapter. I'll go back to it next week, but I want to get this section here. Verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ constrains it, controls us, it holds us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all were dead. And he died for all so that they might live no longer, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore from now on, this is Paul talking about how we're supposed to think, 
From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now do not know him in that way. Why? Because Jesus came into a body of incarnation. That body died and that body was changed. That body became part of the new creation. And so Paul says, verse 17, this is a really important verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is the new creature, or she is a new creature. The old things pass away, behold, all things have come. That's really critical. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the, rec the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them. He has committed to us the, world of the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God was making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, what gets lost in this is that verse 17. Paul is telling us that as we are in Christ, we are part of the new creation, which is started, but is not in its fullness. It will not be full until this creation passes away, and there's still prophetic things that need to be done. But we know from Isaiah 42.9, and from Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, we don't have time to read them all now, that God says in the midst of his explaining the restoration of this creation, he says, I'm going to do something new. I'm not only going to do the restoring of the former things, but I'm going to do something completely new. That's what's going on. There's an overlap here of this creation being restored and the new creation being inaugurated. And Jesus is both of that because in his death and burial and sacrifice, he took care of the sin issue. He was raised from the dead, but not in, the, in a natural body. He was raised in a supernatural body that is physical, but not subject to corruption. Wow. So this is important. Now this means that we're now going to be restored in God's image, but we're going to bear that in the image of God's Son. That image is more than a restoration. Because as Paul, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.4, I want us to look at that verse. 2 Peter 1.4. This is a very, very uh, interesting verse. In 2 Peter 1.4, Peter says, For by these, he's talking about the promises that have been given to us, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, Catholics and Protestants tend to overlook this verse, but the Orthodox really focus on it. And since we're kind of uh, 
experiencing the Orthodox uh, uh, All Saints Day in our liturgy this week, I want I wanted to bring this verse to your mind. This is called in the Orthodox Church deification. Jesus became human. It's his incarnation. In our resurrection, we are going to partake of his nature, which is beyond that. Now, we're not going to become God, but we're going to become partakers in that divine nature. So this, pres this is present now in our spirits which have been born again. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. Though our mind is not, we have to do that by transforming our minds. And that's why the apostles exhort us to renew our minds and to keep our minds on him. It's certainly not in our body, which is subject to the corruption of this life. So Paul says, in these bodies we groan, the old outer man is perishing, but the inner man is renewed day by day. There is a process that has begun in us that we should be cooperating with and be thinking in. Not thinking about, we know everybody in this flesh, even Christ in this flesh, but we now know each other as believers in the kingdom to come and in the creation to come. I want you to see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 49. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 49. So Paul says, he's talking about the resurrection. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Not a body that is spiritual in the sense that it's a spirit and not physical, but a body that is spiritual in its makeup and in the way it operates. And so he says in this passage, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, meaning Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual doesn't come first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly, that's Adam. We have born his image as the image of God. But the second one is from heaven. As is the earthly, so are those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, and we're bearing it now, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Because, he says in the next verse, that flesh and blood in this sense cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So we'll, we'll talk more about that next week when we talk about the resurrection and the rapture in that sense. Paul wants us to know that the resurrection body is part of the new creation. And it'll be ours in the restored kingdom. But it will be a body which is really prepared for the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, and the one new humanity, where there will be a unity of the people 
but not a sameness. There will be people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. Those cultural differences are part of the new creation as they were part of the old creation. But in the old creation, they were fighting with each other. In the new creation, they will be echad. What an incredible thing. So now I want to get to the final verses that I wanted to talk about and have uh, that placed in the, uh, in the bulletin. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is such an important, significant chapter. You should have that chapter memorized. Romans 8, we're going to pick it up at uh, verse 18. And I'm going to go ultimately through verse 32. But we'll start with 18 through 24. Because this is really an important thing. And it was read earlier. And it's part of our liturgy. And we need to understand it. Romans 8, 18. I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us. That's that partaking of the divine nature. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity or futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's our hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of the body. Now, I want to change the wording there so that you'll understand the context. I'm going to say it in a way that Jews would understand it, and then in a way that we Christians would understand it. Okay? So I'm going to read that verse again. Not only this, but we ourselves, now let me say we Jews, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we Jews groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our bar mitzvah as sons, the redemption of the body. Now let me say it as a Christian thing. Not only this, but we Christians, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we are Christians ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our confirmation as sons, the redemption of our body. Now I use those two words, bar mitzvah and confirmation, because those are the religious traditions when a person goes from being a child to being a son, being an adult. In other words, there is a time when we will no longer be children of God. We will be sons and daughters of God. That is, we will be adults in the Lord. We will be mature in the Lord. We will come into full operation in the Lord. And what that is, is the redemption of the body. It happens at the resurrection. We're living in a time now when we are children, learning obedience through our sufferings and the discipline of the Father. But in the resurrection, we will take our full place as adult sons and daughters of God, partaking in the divine nature. That is our hope. And why we don't have it yet, but we have the, the spirit of adoption, 
the maturing spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. Now Paul goes on in verse 25. He said, But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And in the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness. Because we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints, that's us, according to the will of God. And we know that God is working in all things for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us. How will he not give us all things uh, in him? Now, let me, let me tie this together. In the present time, we live our lives, both in this world, but not of it, and in some sense, we have a hope and a certainty that God is working even in all this stuff, the good, the bad, and the ugly, even in this virus and in the racial strife and in the riots and in the confusion and the technology and all of this stuff, God is working good for those who love him. Those of us who are called to him through Christ according to his purpose. Because he foreknew us. And before he formed us in the womb, he predestined us to be conformed, not to this world or even this creation, but to be conformed into the image of his son. So that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn by this resurrection into a very different body among many brethren. That's us. And he predestined you and I for us to be called by means of his son in order for him to justify us by faith to the ultimate end that we will be glorified with him before the angels. We're even going to judge the angels. We're going to go from below the angels to above the angels in that context. And the angels will then praise God for his attributes and the wisdom that he expressed in this creation and in the new creation. And you and I are part of that. That's what this life is about. This life is about us preparing for that. And Paul wants us to think that way instead of catching into this world. So Paul tells the Corinthians in these verses uh, and the ones that follow... Uh, that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ, uh, which is now being accomplished uh, ultimately to the end. And even though we're merely sheep to be sacrificed as an offering for him, our suffering and death can be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us in the restoration of the kingdom and the creation to come. I want you to be thinking about that because we're about to move into the sequencing Next week, we're going to look at the timing of the resurrection, and it requires that we look at this thing generally called the rapture. And then we have to look at the circumstances and signs of his coming 
and the misunderstandings that are found in Christian eschatology related to the second coming. And we're going to do that, but first let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll do Q&A if you have any questions.